Chapter 7, Part 2 of Through the Brazilian Wilderness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barry Eads. Through the Brazilian Wilderness by Theodore Roosevelt. Chapter 7 With a Mule Train Across Nambiquara Land. Part 2. The next day was brilliantly clear. The mules could not be brought in until quite late in the morning, and we had to march twenty miles under the burning tropical sun, right in the hottest part of the day. From a rise of ground we looked back over the vast, sunlit landscape, the endless rolling stretches of low forest. Midway on our journey we crossed a brook. The dogs minded the heat much. They continually ran off to one side, lay down in a shady place, waited until we were several hundred yards ahead, and then raced after us overtook us, and repeated the performance. The pack train came in about sunset, but we ourselves reached the Hiruina in the middle of the afternoon. The Hiruina is the name by which the top hose goes along its upper course. Where we crossed it was a deep rapid stream flowing in a heavily wooded valley with rather steep sides. We were ferried across on the usual balsa, a platform on three dugouts, running by the force of the current on a wire trolley. There was a clearing on each side with a few palms, and on the farther bank were the buildings of the telegraph station. This is a wild country, and the station was guarded by a few soldiers under the command of Lieutenant Marino, a native of Rio Grande do Sul, a blond man who looked like an Englishman, an agreeable companion, and a good and resolute officer, as all must be who do their work in this wilderness. The Huruina was first followed at the end of the 18th century by the Portuguese explorer Franco, and not again until over a hundred years had elapsed, when the Telegraphic Commission not only descended, but for the first time accurately placed and mapped its course. There were several houses on the rise of the farther bank, all with thatched roofs, some of them with walls of upright tree trunks, some of them daub and wattle. Into one of the latter, with two rooms, we took our belongings. The sand flies were bothersome at night, coming through the interstices of the ordinary mosquito nets. The first night they did this I got no sleep until morning, when it was cool enough for me to roll myself in my blanket and put on a head net. Afterwards we used fine nets of a kind of cheesecloth. They were hot, but they kept out all, or almost all, of the sandflies and other small tormentors. Here we overtook the rearmost division of Captain Amilcar's bullock train. Our own route had diverged in order to pass the Great Falls. Captain Amilcar had come direct, overtaking the pack oxen, which had left to Pyropone before we did, laden with material for the Devada trip. He had brought the oxen through in fine shape, losing only three beasts with their loads, and had himself left the Juruina in the morning of the day we reached there. His weakest animals left that evening to make the march by moonlight, and as it was desirable to give them thirty-six hours start, we halted for a day on the banks of the river. It was not a wasted day. In addition to bathing and washing our clothes, the naturalists made some valuable additions to the collection, including a boldly marked black, blue, and white jay, and our photographs were developed and our writing brought abreast of the date. Traveling through a tropical wilderness in the rainy season, when the amount of baggage that can be taken is strictly limited, entails not only a good deal of work, but also the exercise of considerable ingenuity if the writing and photographing and especially the preservation of the specimens are to be done in satisfactory shape. 
At the telegraph office we received news that the voyage of Loreato and Fiali down the Papagayo had opened with a misadventure. In some bad rapids not many miles below the falls, two of the canoes had been upset, half of their provisions and all of Fiali's baggage lost, and Fiali himself nearly drowned. The Papagayo is known both at the source and the mouth. To descend it did not represent a plunge into the unknown, as in the case of the Duvada and the Ananos. But the actual waterwork, over the part that was unexplored, offered the same possibilities of mischance and disaster. It is a hazardous thing to descend a swift, unknown river rushing through an uninhabited wilderness. To descend or ascend the ordinary great highway rivers of South America, such as the Amazon, Paraguay, Tapajos, and in its lower course, the Orinoco, is now so safe and easy, whether by steamboat or big native cargo boat, that people are apt to forget the very serious difficulties offered by the streams offer themselves great rivers which run into or form the upper courses of these same water highways. Few things are easier than the former feat, and few more difficult than the latter, and experience in ordinary traveling on the lower courses of the rivers is of no benefit whatever in enabling a man to form a judgment as to what can be done, and how to do it, on the upper courses. Failure to remember this fact is one of the obstacles in the way of securing a proper appreciation of the needs and the results of South American exploration. At the Juruina we met a party of Nambiquaras, very friendly and sociable, and very glad to see Colonel Rondon. They were originally exceedingly hostile and suspicious, but the Colonel's unwearied thoughtfulness and good temper, joined with his indomitable resolution, enabled him to avoid war and to secure their friendship and even their aid. He never killed one. Many of them are known to him personally. He is on remarkably good terms with them, and they are very fond of him. Although this does not prevent them from now and then yielding to temptation, even at his expense, and stealing a dog or something else which strikes them as offering an irresistible attraction. They cannot be employed at steady work, but they do occasional odd jobs, and are excellent at hunting up strayed mules or oxen, and a few of the men have begun to wear clothes, purely for ornament. Their confidence and bold friendliness showed how well they had been treated. Probably half of our visitors were men. Several were small boys. One was a woman with a baby. The others were young married women and girls. Nowhere in Africa did we come across wilder or more absolutely primitive savages. Although these Indians were pleasanter and better featured than any of the African tribes at the same stage of culture. Both sexes were well made and rather good looking, with fairly good teeth, although some of them seemed to have skin diseases. They were a laughing, easy-tempered crew, and the women were as well fed as the men, and were obviously well treated from the savage standpoint. There was no male brutality like that which forms such a revolting feature in the life of the Australian blackfellows and, although to a somewhat less degree, in the life of so many Negro and Indian tribes. They were practically absolutely naked. In many savage tribes, the men go absolutely naked, but the women wear a breech-clout or line-cloth. In certain tribes we saw near Lake Victoria Nyanza, and on the upper White Nile, both men and women were practically naked. Among these Nambaquaris, the women were more completely naked than the men, although the difference was not essential the men wore a string around the waist. Most of them wore nothing else, but a few had loosely hanging from this string in front a scanty tuft of dried grass or a small piece of cloth, which, however, 
was of purely symbolic use so far as either protection or modesty was concerned. The women did not wear a stitch of any kind anywhere on their bodies. They did not have on so much as a string or a bead or even an ornament in their hair. They were all, men and women, boys and well-grown young girls, as entirely at ease and unconscious as so many friendly animals. All of them, men, women, and children, laughing and talking, crowded around us, whether we were on horseback or on foot. They flocked into the house, and when I sat down to write, surrounded me so closely that I had to push them gently away. The women and girls often stood holding one another's hands, or with their arms over one another's shoulders, or around one another's waists, offering an attractive picture. The men had holes pierced through the septum of the nose and through the upper lip, and wore a straw through each hole. The women were not marked or mutilated. It seems like a contradiction in terms, but it is nevertheless a fact that the behavior of these completely naked women and men was entirely modest. There was never an indecent look or a consciously indecent gesture. They had no blankets or hammocks, and when night came, simply lay down in the sand. Colonel Rondon stated that they never wore a covering by night or by day, and if it was cool, slept one on each side of a small fire. Their huts were merely slight shelters against the rain. The moon was nearly full, and after nightfall, a few of the Indians suddenly held an improvised dance for us in front of our house. There were four men, a small boy, and two young women or grown girls. Two of the men had been doing some work for the commission, and were dressed, one completely and one partially, in ordinary clothes. Two of the men and the boy were practically naked, and the two young women were absolutely so. All of them danced in a circle, without a touch of embarrassment or impropriety. The two girls kept hold of each other's hands throughout, dancing among the men as modestly as possible, and with the occasional interchange of a laugh or jest, in as good taste and temper as any dance in civilization. The dance consisted in slowly going round in a circle, first one way, then the other, rhythmically beating time with the feet to the music of the song they were chanting. The chants, there were three of them, all told, were measured and rather slowly uttered melodies, varied with an occasional half-subdued shrill cry. The women continually uttered a kind of long-drawn wailing or droning. I am not enough of a musician to say whether it was an overtone or the sustaining of the burden of the ballad. The young boy sang better than any of the others. It was a strange and interesting sight to see these utterly wild, friendly savages circling in their slow dance and chanting their immemorial melodies in the brilliant tropical moonlight, with the river rushing by in the background through the lonely heart of the wilderness. The Indians stayed with us, feasting, dancing, and singing until the early hours of the morning. They then suddenly and silently disappeared in the darkness and did not return. In the morning we discovered that they had gone off with one of Colonel Rondon's dogs. Probably the temptation had proved irresistible to one of their number, and the others had been afraid to interfere, and also afraid to stay in or return to our neighborhood. We had not time to go after them, but Rondon remarked that as soon as he again came to the neighborhood, he would take some soldiers, hunt up the Indians, and reclaim the dog. It has been his mixture of firmness, good nature, and good judgment that has enabled him to control these bold, warlike savages, and even to reduce the warfare between them and the Parisis. In spite of their good nature and laughter, their fearlessness and familiarity showed how necessary it was not to let them get the upper hand. 
They are also required to leave all their arms a mile or two away before they come into the encampment. They are much wilder and more savage, and at a much lower cultural level than the Parisis. In the afternoon of the day following our arrival, there was a heavy rainstorm which drove into the unglazed windows, and here and there came through the roof and walls of our daub and wattle house. The heat was intense, and there was much moisture in this valley. During the downpour I looked out at the dreary little houses, showing through the driving rain, while the sheets of muddy water slid past their door sills, and I felt a sincere respect for the lieutenant and his soldiers who were holding this desolate outpost of civilization. It is an unhealthy spot. There has been much malarial fever and beriberi, an obscure and deadly disease. Next morning we resumed our march. It soon began to rain, and we were drenched when, some fifteen miles on, we reached the river where we were to camp. After the great heat we felt quite cold in our wet clothes, and gladly crowded round a fire which was kindled under a thatched shed beside the cabin of the ferryman. This ferry boat was so small that it could only take one mule, or at most two, at a time. The mules, and a span of six oxen dragging an ox-cart, which we had overtaken, were ferried slowly to the farther side that afternoon, as there was no feed on the hither bank where we ourselves camped. The ferryman was a soldier in the employ of the Telegraphic Commission. His good-looking, pleasant-mannered wife, evidently of both Indian and Negro blood, was with him, and was doing all she could do as a housekeeper, in the comfortless little cabin with its primitive bareness of furniture and fittings. Here we saw Captain Amilcar, who had come back to hurry up his rear guard. We stood ankle-deep in mud and water by the swollen river, while the rain beat on us, and enjoyed a few minutes' talk with the cool, competent officer who was doing a difficult job with such workmanlike efficiency. He had no poncho and was wet through, but was much too busy in getting his laden oxen forward to think of personal discomfort. He had had a good deal of trouble with his mules, but his oxen were still in fair shape. After leaving the Huarina, the ground became somewhat more hilly, and the scrubby forest was less open, but otherwise there was no change in the monotonous and yet to me rather attractive landscape. The ant hills and the ant houses in the trees, arboreal ant hills, so to speak, were as conspicuous as ever. The architects of some were red ants, of others black ants, and others, which were on the whole the largest, had been built by the white ants, the termites. The latter were not infrequently taller than a horseman's head. That evening round the campfire, Colonel Rondon happened to mention how the brother of one of the soldiers with us, a Parisis Indian, had been killed by a Jararaca snake. Cherry told of a narrow escape he had from one while collecting in Guyana. At night he used to set traps in camp for small mammals. One night he heard one of these traps go off under his hammock. He reached down for it, and as he fumbled for the chain, he felt a snake strike at him, just missing him in the darkness, but actually brushing his hand. He lit a light and saw that a big Jararaca had been caught in the trap, and he preserved it as a specimen. Snakes frequently came into his camp after nightfall. He killed one rattlesnake, which had swallowed the skin bodies of four mice he had prepared as specimens, which shows that rattlesnakes do not always feed only on living prey. Another rattlesnake, which he killed in Central America, had just swallowed an opossum, which proved to be of a species new to science. Miller told how once, on the Orinoco, he saw on the bank a small anaconda, some ten feet long, killing one of the iguanas, big, active, truculent, carnivorous lizards, 
equally at home on the land and in the water. Evidently the iguanas were digging out holes in the bank in which to lay their eggs, for there were several such holes and iguanas working at them. The snake had crushed its prey to a pulp, and not more than a couple of feet away another iguana was still busily and with entire unconcern engaged in making its burrow. At Miller's approach the anaconda left the dead iguana and rushed into the water, and the live iguana promptly followed it. Miller also told of the stone gods and altars and temples he had seen in the great Columbian forests, monuments of strange civilizations which flourished and died out ages ago, and of which all memory has vanished. He and Sherry told of giant rivers and waterfalls, and of forests never penetrated, and mountains never ascended by civilized man, and of bloody revolutions that devastated the settled regions. Listening to them, I felt they could write Tale of Two Naturalists, that would be worth reading. They were short of literature, by the way, a party such as ours always needs books, and as Kermit's reading matter consisted chiefly of Camoans and other Portuguese, or else Brazilian writers, I strove to supply the deficiency with spare volumes of Gibbon. At the end of our march we were usually far ahead of the mule train, and the rain was also usually falling. Accordingly we would sit about under trees, or under a shed or lean-to, if there was one, each solemnly reading a volume of Gibbon, and no better reading can be found. In my own case, as I had been having rather a steady course of Gibbon, I varied him now and then with a volume of Arsene Lupin lent me by Kermit. End of chapter 7, part 2